So um, about three and a half years ago, I uh, went to Africa, uh, Kenya, and I went there to, to, to teach and um, to visit and see what some of our missionaries were, were doing in, in Kenya. And so it was a really cool trip and a really cool opportunity whenever you get to travel and you get to see what God is doing in other places uh, around the world and you get to see other cultures and, and meet new people. It's, it's really a fantastic uh, thing to do and to see. And um, while we were there, after we did a lot of the ministry that we were doing, we had this opportunity to go on a, a safari, and which I was just super pumped about because I'm, I, I like the outdoors. I, I like watching like the Discovery Channel, Nat, National Geographic, all of those sorts of things, and seeing the animals um, you know, seeing the lions, seeing the elephants, and, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be so cool. They're not in a pen. They're just out, like, in, in the wild. And so um, we pull up to this place where we're going to stay, and it's just super interesting. They uh, put you in, or this is at least where we stayed. They called it, like, luxury tents. Um, and it is kind of what what it sounds like. I mean, there's just these super nice tents and kind of, um, in this little area, they almost kind of keep it like a compound, but there's not really these huge fences or anything around it. In fact, I walked outside of, of my tent, and there's a river where the crocodiles live. Um, and also the hippos live in this, in this river. Now, it was down the hill, but a crocodile could climb the hill um, and could have probably, you know, just kind of come in to your tent and uh, so we stayed here for a couple there for a couple of days, and we got in the like the trucks, like the big Land Rovers kind of you see, or big vans that you you see like on television shows, um, and you just go and drive around the the safari. And, and one of the things that amazed me, I'll share this with you, is that you know you watch like the Discovery Channel or National Geographic Channel, and you think like, how do they get so close to like these lions? Um, or, you know, these huge predators or whatever. Well, I'm going to tell you this. You just drive up to them. That's all you do. <laughs> you just drive right up to them. And you just see these huge things. It's, it's almost anti-climatical. Anti, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, um, uh, uh, you, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even want to try to get it out right now. If your tongue is tied, don't even try. That's what I've learned. Um, but, but you just drive up and, and you see these huge beasts out there. And there's no way like you're getting out of your car to pet these things or get close to them or whatever. But it's really cool. Well, one of the things that we noticed is every, every morning and every, every morning there was a guy that would be walking a ton of cattle out of the safari, kind of past its fence area into their fenced area. And then in the evenings you would see them walking out of this fenced area, like into the safari area, like where the lions lived, and like that, you watch the hyenas run around and all of these things. And we uh, we asked our guide, who said, like, uh, what are they doing? And he said, well, they are uh, they're taking their cattle from where they live in their fenced in area out to the safari, so they have a place to live. So, well, why do they come in in the mornings? and go out in the evenings. It's dark out. They said, well, you can't, we, we don't have them out there in, during the day because that's when tourists come. 
And you guys are, are paying to see like the wildebeest. You're not paying to see the, the cattle or anything like that. And so the government, um, they contract it out so these people can come in and out it during the, during the nighttime. And so you see, you see like this one person with like a hundred head of cattle walking in and out. And just, they just stay out there all night. And this guy, was, this guy said, yeah. And said, well, like, aren't they afraid of the, the lions? <laughs> Or the the elephants or the hyenas like those a lot of the lions are aren't they nighttime predators? Um, and what the guy said was, well, no, uh, they're not. Uh, the lions know not to mess with them or they just feel all right going in and out. This the people who did this have been doing this for thousands of years, and they were called the Maasai. They're from the Maasai tribe. And this is what they would walk in and out with every night to protect themselves and to protect their cattle from a lion. This thing. Uh, yeah, um, it's pretty hard. You can feel it, Brianna. Uh, it's pretty hard. Like, like that would probably hurt if I hit you in the head with it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I could get you like really good with it and like knock you out or something. I, I don't know, but my, you, you watch these people come in and out, and you just think about how, how brave they are. And I know some of you know this. Um, like, I'm a hunter. We weren't there to hunt. We were not there to hunt. We were just there to see the animals. Um, but, you know, people will say, or I'll even think, like, when I go out, like, really early and it's still dark out, or I come in when it's still dark out, like, I get a little spooked. Um, and I don't hunt anywhere except for, like, where there's coyotes. Uh, and coyotes are pretty much, they are wimpy animals for the most part. Like, they are super afraid of you. And, and so, um, they run from you. But, like, these men, they are going in and out where there are lions around. And my buddy, who, one of the guys I went to, too, he was a hunter. And we got to talking about this. And we just, we just felt really, felt really wimpy. <laughs> you know, like, our manhood was just kind of stripped from us. Uh, watching these guys in a loincloth in a club walk back and forth at night where the lions were. And I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes like there are people even that are like that, that we look at like with our faith, um, that we look at ourselves and we look at them. And it's just like, man, they just, they seem to be, they seem to be so much braver than we are. Like they, they walk wherever and they just, it seems like they're just confident and like the Lord is going to do something. The Lord is going to protect them um, by the way they speak, by the things that they fight for, by the things that they don't fight for. Maybe because of their, of their patience, maybe it's because of their generosity. And you just feel like a, a wimpy Christian. And then there's some people in the Bible, too, that just feel like giants and heroes of faith that can make us feel a little wimpy. But... You know, as I read through the story of David, especially through the first half of David's life, what I see is I do see a hero. And I see somebody whom, if we see what is going on within him and um, the, the way in which he operates in life, I do think it can be very helpful for us. So today, as we look at David's life, I just want to... I want to maybe answer this question or help you take a look at this question is like what separates you maybe from the heroes of faith and maybe yourself. Um, And I'm just going to look. We have like one point this morning that I'm getting at. But as I do, I do want to take us through uh, the story of David. 
Um, and the story of David begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so, you know, we're kind of jumping back into the story here. If you've been reading along with us and uh, have taken a break with us, um, or you're reading your books, the story, uh, basically where we pick up today is 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I had somebody ask me yesterday, well, who's Samuel? You're here, you're preaching on Samuel. Who's Samuel? Samuel is simply, simply a prophet of God. He was born at the beginning of the book of Samuel. It's obvious that he didn't write the book of Samuel because he dies. Huh. And first Samuel, and there's two books of Samuel. But Samuel is this prophet, a guy who speaks on God's behalf, and he anoints people on God's behalf, and he anoints God's leaders. And uh, at the beginning of first Samuel, Samuel anointed a guy named Saul, and Saul is the king. And Saul was following the Lord under his headship and his kingship, and he's moving things forward. And then all of a sudden, Saul basically decides that, hey, like, I'm not going to I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to pay attention to God. I'm going to do my own thing. And so Saul loses his anointing. And Samuel, the prophet of God, who was trying to lead the people of God alongside Saul, is by the time you get to chapter 16, he's sulking. He's going, God, what are we going to do? Uh, we don't have a we don't have a leader who is following you, who is obeying you um, or, or seems really to care that much about doing this. And God looks at Samuel and he says, Samuel, get off your knees. Quit crying. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go send you to a family and you're going to find a young man in this family and you're going to anoint him king and he's going to become king and he's going to lead my people. And so Samuel gets up. He's done crying. God sends him out and he gets the house of a man named Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. And so... Samuel says, bring me your sons. And so Jesse does one by one, starting with the oldest. And here's God's response as he looks at the oldest brother here. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And so looks at the oldest brother, says, God says, Samuel, don't, don't look at those things. I'm going to reject the oldest brother here for the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at how much hair he has. All right? By the way, when we haven't had, you realize we haven't had a bald president since TV came out? But the Lord looks at how much money he has. Or the Lord looks at how many degrees he has. Or the Lord checks to see whether or not or whether or not he is married. Did you guys, did you hear about those golfers who got struck by lightning this past week? So these three golfers, they got struck by lightning and went to heaven. And um, St. Peter was up there and St. Peter said, well, you guys, you, you all, you know, you, you were believers. You, you know, you're good to go. You just keep on golfing. And he said, but here's the thing. Don't hit the ducks. And so the men said, okay, don't hit the ducks. What happens when you hit the ducks? Well, a man swung his golf club and he hit one of the ducks. And uh, St. Peter shows up with the politically correct term, term an un- ungorgeous woman. Um, and he takes handcuffs and he, hands, he handcuffs the woman on to the man. And he says, here you go. Here's your wife for the rest of eternity. And so they, the other two continue to golf. And one of the golfers hits a duck. And so St. Peter shows up with a woman who is ungorgeous. And 
takes the handcuffs, handcuffs it to the man and says, here you go, here's your wife for all of eternity. And so the other man's all alone, he continues to golf and he's going along and then all of a sudden St. Peter shows up. And he shows up with this beautiful woman. And this man looks at St. Peter and he goes, did I hit a duck? And St. Peter said no and he, he goes, well, what did I do to deserve her? And St. Peter says, well, she hit a duck. But the Lord looks at your past. You see, the, thing, the truth is the Lord looks at, at a man's heart, at a woman's heart. And we so much, you know, the joke is funny, right? Because we typically, like, we value people's externals, don't we? But, you know, God says, here's, here's the thing. Like, I value what's going on in, in, in someone's heart. And so Samuel, he, he, he looks through all seven brothers. There's seven brothers that he looks through. And then finally he, he looks at Jesse and he goes, there's one more, right? There's, there's eight of you have eight sons is what I'm told. And here's what Jesse tells. Um, here's what Jesse tells Samuel. He says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, when Jesse Tell Samuel, behold, there's the youngest. This word can be translated in a number of different ways. Hey, there's the smallest. Um, some commentators point out, like, this is the runt. And in other words, like, I do have a son, but he's only, he's somewhere around 14 or 16 years old, and he's too small. He's just not fit to be a king. He's not ready to do what you want him to do. And I've got seven other sons. But here's the truth. Like, if you've been along with us in the story, and I know it's been a couple weeks, but let me jog your, your memory here is that the truth is that God just uses unlikely people to get done the things that he wants to get done. I mean, think about it. He starts with Abraham and Sarah in chapter 12. He starts with two very old people who are uh, above child rearing age to basically start a nation. And then he uses somebody like Joseph again, a younger brother who was sold into slavery. He spends most of his time in prison and then all of a sudden is like vice president of the largest empire in the world at that time. God uses people like Moses, who is hardly a Hebrew because from the time he was a baby, was not raised among the Hebrew people. And he's not really royalty, although he was raised among the Egyptian royalty. He's not really trusted by either. And what we're told is that he, the Bible actually teaches that he had a speech impediment. And yet God calls him to lead people that don't trust him uh, away from people that want to kill him. As the story continues, you realize that God uses people like Rahab, a prostitute, to let people into Jericho. God is not a respecter of persons. What matters for God is someone's heart and what's inside of them is what we learn. And so what takes place here is that Samuel anoints David king at that point. But only Samuel, maybe his brothers, his dad knows anything about this at this time. And so he anoints him king. What we're told is that the Holy Spirit enters David at that time. Within, by the time we get to the story of kind of David and Goliath, in which we're going to get there, uh, about two years pass, and in that time, David just goes back to tending sheep. He goes back to being a shepherd. Uh, we also discover that he meets Saul during this time. 
Saul, who is the reigning king, uh, basically begins to go crazy. We're told that an evil spirit is put on Saul. And one of the ways that Saul is calmed down is by David going to Saul and playing his harp for Saul. It's very interesting. I mean, I'm sure there's a sermon there somewhere, but David, who is full of the Holy Spirit, when even he's around somebody with an evil spirit, all of a sudden that person is calmed down and the Lord does something in their life. I'm not going to preach on that this morning, but this is what is going on here. When we get to the story of David and Goliath, here's what happens. As the Philistines have moved in on Israel land and they are on top of a mountain across from another mountain in which Saul and Israel's armies uh, are on. And below them is the Battle of Elah. Now, or not the Battle of Elah, excuse me, but the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines and Israel both want control of this valley, but you don't want to be caught in the valley during in war, do you? Right? It's a death trap because people can come down on, on you. But if you can control the valley, you can control a lot of Israel. And so the Philistines, the Israel's arch enemies are on one side and Israel's on the other. And what, they, what keeps happening is that uh, um, Goliath can, continues to come down into the valley by himself, basically challenging the Israelites to send one person down to defeat him. And this was a way, it was a one-on-one battle, and basically it would determine who won the valley. And it, it, in some ways, it was to keep there from being a ton of bloodshed, keep, them, keep there from being a, a battle. If Goliath won, the Philistines would win, and they'd get the valley and get the march forward, and vice versa. Well, this is happening at this time, and Goliath keeps coming down, and the armies are kind of at a standstill because nobody wants to fight Goliath. Well, David is too young to be uh, a soldier, and he's back home tending the sheep as a shepherd, and his dad looks at David and he says, Your brothers are all at war. They're all on the battlefield. Um, you know where they're at. They're on the hill. Here, go take some pizzas and deliver it to them. And so, um, and make sure the generals are well fed too, the people in charge of them. We want to keep your brothers safe. And so David gets people to watch the sheep for him. And he takes off and he heads to the battlefield and to the Israelite camp. And he begins to ask around. He says, what's going on? Why is everybody just standing around? Why does there seem to be a standstill? And people tell him what's going on. And they say, hey, by the way, like whoever defeats Goliath, like Saul has, has promised uh, that that they'd get his daughter and that they would get some riches and all of these sorts of things. And then finally David is continues to peek around and uh, he he um, he finally he he says to the army and those around him like this is a boy telling them this. He says for in First Samuel seventeen twenty six he says for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. So he looks at all these grown men and he, he's saying, like, who is this godless person that is keeping you from moving forward? Like, don't you realize that you fight for God's army? Don't you realize that you are children of God and you're letting this letting this godless person keep you from moving forward? You're letting this powerless thing keep you from moving forward. There's, again, another sermon in that, right? Like, what in your life is keeping you from moving forward? David's brother, he, uh, he looks 
at David, his oldest brother Elab. He looks at David and he says, David, what are you doing? He says, Why are you here? Did you just come here to watch us die? To go home. You're, you're not actually going to fight. Like You don't belong here. Leave us alone. Give us our pizza and leave. And uh, David just doesn't give up. In fact, David actually, he, he's, he's going to volunteer. If you guys won't move forward, if you won't fight Goliath, I will. Now, word must have got around camp because all of a sudden David finds himself in front of Saul. And by the way, we are told at the beginning of First Daniel that Saul is the biggest person in the army. That Saul was head and shoulders among everybody, and yet he's not willing to fight. But David gets to Saul here, and he says, I'll go fight Goliath. And this is how Saul responds to David. He says, in 1 Samuel 17, 33, he says, You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. You get that? You're, you're not able to. You're just a boy. This guy has been a warrior since he was your age. You're not going to be able to defeat him. So what David encounters here is just another doubter in his life. We saw that he, his dad told him, you're too small to be king. His, his brothers obviously didn't respect him or to believe him. And then you have Saul here saying, you're just, a, you're just a boy. And can you blame him? I mean, Goliath means giant, by the way. We're told Goliath was a huge man, obviously big enough to where everybody is afraid to fight this man, and Saul has his harp player come to him and say, uh, "Hey, I'll kill him." Right? Now I don't know about you, but like I, I, I played football, and so I'm just imagining, like, okay, what's the analogy here? And let's just say for a second that you you have this this team is tied up seven to seven. And they've got this running back who is just a fantastic running back, and you know they're going to give him the ball on the goal line. And your middle linebacker gets hurt, and so now you're looking on the sidelines for somebody who will play middle linebacker and stand up to this running back. And you go up and down the sideline, and nobody volunteers. And all of a sudden, you look over towards the band, and the freshman clarinet player volunteers. Right, to go. Now, if you're a clarinet player... I'm not, I'm not making any assumptions about you right now, but, right, I just didn't know a whole lot that played football, and you're a freshman, you're young, okay? But, and he volunteers and goes in. I mean, you're going to be sitting back, and you're going to be, all right, <laughs> right, let's see what happens. At that point, it becomes a little comical, and yet... David shows up and he volunteers and he is ready to do this. And basically, he is going to show off his Maasai skills. He reminds everybody, he said, hey, I'm more than a harp player. He said, I was a shepherd. Like I, I fought off lions and bears. Goliath, I can get Goliath, but look at what he says. Uh, as he reflects on what he has done, a little bit of that he has done as a shepherd. David said this as he, as he responds to Samuel, or Saul. He said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. 
Now, I, I, want you, I want to show you something here. And, you know, I highlighted it in red there. He said, the Lord who delivered me. You know, God had delivered me from the lion and the bear. And, and God is going to deliver me from this Philistine. And so David, basically, uh, he's going to march forward fearlessly because he's not going to wear any armor because he don't have any armor that can fit him. Uh, he's too small is basically what we're told for the armor that they have. And so he takes it off and he says, I'm just going to go forward to the, with the Lord. And so he marches forward and he gets to Goliath here. And here's what he tells Goliath. I love this. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Right? Like William Wallace has nothing on David at this point. Okay? And then he says, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Like David is totally dissing Goliath at this point because not to bury a body was like the worst thing that you could do to somebody. He said, I'm not even going to bury your body. I'm going to let the animals eat it. This is just how confident David is in himself right now. And he, or really not in himself. I'm going to show you that here in a second. And he says that all the earth may know that God, that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now, here's the big thing. Like, here's just one thing. I want you to know this morning. Now, one thing I want you to reflect on this morning, and it's simply this, is that David trusts God. David trusts God. See, it was the Lord who delivered him from the hand of the lion. That's, although Goliath is going to come out of, after him, it's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's God whose battle is about to be waged. It's God in whom David trust completely. We know this. We know that David does not trust in himself. He's too small. David is too small. He can't even fit into the armor. David is anything but stupid. But read the Psalms. You read somebody who is a fantastic musician who is also able to put lyrics together. David, David isn't stupid. He knows this guy should crush him. We know that David doesn't march forward to defeat Goliath because he has all of this moral support, right? Like, people are behind him going, <laughs> good luck, right? His dad doesn't even know about this. He probably wouldn't be allowed to do this. Okay? So it's not because of all this moral support that he has. Third, it's not because he has experience. How I practiced, right? That lion was just like Goliath. I mean, he had a sword and a spear. And so when that lion came at, at me, it was like, I, it, it, no. He didn't have a ton of experience. None of that. None of the stuff that we all want, right? To be faithful to God. God, I just need more support, right? God, I... I just need more of this or uh, God, just, you know, give me a little more experience over here before I trust you over here. 
Uh, ultimately, I, I believe that this is this is what what separates the heroes of faith, some of your heroes, and, and maybe our, ourselves. Is just this question? Like, can we just answer this question? Is do we trust God in the same way that David does? And will we allow our lives to reflect it? I mean, you know, does your prayer life reflect that you trust God? When Goliath steps up, do you go to God and ask God to defeat him? Or, or, or do you just try all of these different ways first and just hope something like good will happen? Do you, do you trust God with your time? Like, how, how, do you, how do you spend your time? Well, like God is calling me to, to do this for Him over there, but I, I just don't have time to do it. Do you, do you trust God with the way that you obey? God... I know, I, I know you don't want me to do this. I, I, I know I need to wait on you in this area of my life. And yet, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, one of the things, if you, I don't know if you watched the video or not, but David had two opportunities to kill Saul. Two different opportunities to kill Saul after Saul decided that he wanted to kill him later on. David does not take either one of them because he knows that the Bible says do not kill God's anointed. And so David doesn't, he doesn't speed up God's process of making him king even. Maybe, right, it's just God is, is calling you to trust him to stand up for the right thing. God is calling you to trust him to use your money the right ways. Now, now here's the thing, like if we trust God, here's what takes place. And here's really why David did it. This is the reason why David did it. Do you catch it in verses 26 and 47? If you didn't, go back in your notes and you can underline this. There's two that's. First in verse 46, it says that. I'm doing this that. All the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He continues. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves. When you trust God... People see God. People believe and see that there is a God who lives. People see and believe that there is a God who saves. The God who brings us up out of our old life and saves us and gives us a new life. People who have never believed see this. And so my challenge for you is to trust God in such a way that when people hear you pray, they know you trust God and so that they can see that God lives. When people see how you spend your time, they can see that you trust God. Like, you know, I think about my own children. Like, if my own children were to look at my life, like, do they see a God who I believe lives? Right? Do they see a God who I believe saves? Do they see it in the way that I obey? See it in the way that I spend my money? Do they wait? Do they see it in in the way in which that I stand up for the right things? Do they see that? This is this is our this is our goal too, church. 
And this is where I believe just David hits a nail on the head. David was not a perfect person, by the way. We're going to see that next week. Um, But this is where David has it right. And this is where David is to be emulated. And, And people see this in David's life. Now, what happens after Goliath is they don't. They don't make David king right away. David gets armies and armies follow David and David is successful on the battlefield because he trusts in God. God gives him victories and yet the King Saul becomes jealous and David has to go and hide for a little while and then there's seven years of David even having to fend off Saul's son who wants to have king. But eventually, like the people, they see David's life and they themselves crown David king. And so David becomes king and he is a trusted king in which the people serve in which the people follow and the people go to battle for and the people trust now here's the thing church like we have a king that we are to follow that we are to go to battle for that we are to trust and his name is Jesus this, this, is the, this is the person in whom we trust. And Jesus gives us reason to trust him. In fact, he even points back at David and he says, who is his great-grandfather, and he says, uh, by the way, he said, David was a shepherd, but he said, I'm the good shepherd. And he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he said, I lay down my life, but only to take it up again. And, and what Jesus is, is trying to remind us of here is that Jesus puts his life on the line for us. That Jesus, like David, is willing to go and fight for us. And Jesus, like David, is willing to lay his life down for us and to die for us. He's saying, will you trust me? He said, I love you enough to die for you. Will you trust me? He said, but I don't stop there. He said, I, I can raise it up. And I can raise your life up. He said, I can raise it up. And that's what makes Jesus king, by the way. As he is risen, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he basically is just asking is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you lay down your life for me so that I might raise it up, so that I might give you a new life? This is our call this morning, and this is my challenge to you, is to simply trust the Good Shepherd, Jesus. Now, I didn't get real specific on which area in your life that you need to trust God in. Um, I'm just going to trust that He's speaking to you this morning in some way. That there's an area, that there's an aspect, that there's something in which you just need to walk forward and walk through and defeat your Goliath in this morning. On your heart and on your mind. And Jesus is asking, will you trust me? Will you follow me here? Will you give this to me? There are others here this morning. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus at all for the first time. Before Jesus gets to this point in John 10, he says, um, I have sheep. He says, I am a shepherd. And he says, I have sheep. And here's the thing. He said, all the sheep, they hear my voice. And I call them by name. You know that Jesus said that? That I have sheep, and all of my sheep, they hear my, they hear my voice, and I call them by name. And maybe you came here this morning, and, and you have been feeling Jesus calling you to Him. I believe it's personal. 
Jesus calls us by name. And so you know who you are. You know if you've been called by God. If that's you, here's my challenge for you this morning. Is will you trust him enough to give your life to him? To walk in obedience. To receive Jesus' death. Jesus died for your sins so that you might turn from your sins and so that you might turn to him and follow him in all things in life. And so that you might trust in his resurrection and his new life. Yes, there's a new life to come after you die, but there's a new life to be had now. One of forgiveness, one of obedience, one of joy, one of hope, one of peace, one of patience, one of kindness. He's calling you by name this morning. Make sure you answer. Say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. And today I give my heart and my life to you. Let us all pray this morning as the worship team comes up and leads us in a song. Father, this morning I, I give you thanks. I give you thanks for David, um, for somebody who was certainly a giant in the faith and who defeated the giant Goliath, Father. But more importantly, I, I thank you for the story that he leaves us with. And might David's story be our story? Might we step forward and trust and believe that whatever is in front of us, Father, that you can defeat? Because you are powerful, because you are good, because you go to fight for us. And so, Father, right now, I just I call on you to defeat the giants in our lives. Not in our, our own power, or our own strength, but in yours. Father, I know that there are people here this morning or there may be people here this morning. I don't know whom you are calling by name. And you are asking them to come and follow you and declare your son is king. And so, Father, if those, are, if those people are here this morning, I pray that you make it clear to them. I pray, Father, that they, may, they even pray this prayer with me. Father, I know that you created me to follow you and trust in you. And yet I have not done that up until this point in my life. And so, I pray, Father, that you forgive me. That you forgive me of my sins. That you forgive me of my past. And that I turn to you. And that I decide to follow you, Father. Father, I pray that I look at Jesus every day. I pray that you fill me with the hope that he gives. The love that He has and the joy that He brings. I thank You for saving me. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.